I mean, there are so many things that I that I that I'd love to talk to you about when when I was sitting down to do a bit of research and kind of craft the conversation with you. It's different because you know because of the way that you've kind of navigated. There's also not <laughs> your, the information about you is not as easily accessible as people who are more in the public spotlight. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's cool. I can I, I can fill you in on that. That's okay. Yes, yeah, so I can I, tell you from where I was to where I am. Yeah, cool. I'd love to. I'd love to know. We spoke briefly last week when I when we met about how you kind of broke into it. But I'd love to hear kind of uh, I guess your origin story, how you got into sure. it, what made you decide to form a career in the film industry. Yeah, no, that's cool. I'm happy to chat away about that. Except that I would say it's more a career in the TV industry. But, look, in the screen industries now, I mean, we tell stories for different screens. I mean, I've just caught up on vinyl this morning because I've got a Foxtel subscription in an, and um, – but I wasn't able to watch it when I was there, so I watched it on my iPad, you know. Mm. So I don't – it's like – I mean, I know friends of mine that watch things on their phones. I, I go – I can't go that far. I prefer to <laughs> – you know, I like to give some homage to the cinematographer who has taken a long time to craft a big frame. Yeah. But I don't mind what – I mean, I also have a large iPad for that very reason that I haven't got a small one. So, you know, um, I think that's an interesting thing, how television has become what it is now. Mm. I think that's something worth – chatting about mm. from the snobbery that, you know, film and TV used to have this great divide and they don't anymore. Mm. So, no, that's worth chatting about. Yeah, sure. It's it's almost, mm. in a way, it's kind of come around to that where television is the more accepted and accessible medium, particularly, I think, mm. in the States with this golden kind of generation sure. of television. Mark Scorsese directed the pilot of vinyl. Yeah. You know, like... <laughs> one of the best film directors of all time, you know. Mm, it's certainly indicative of where things are heading. Absolutely. And um, and also television has, um, um, there is a monetizing for directors who, but anyway, we can talk about that. A very warm hello to you all out there in the coming up next work. How are you? today how are you this week how are you this month how's 2016 going for you i'm curious where are you listening to this today you're listening on a train on a plane in some sort of automobile i just wanted to send a quick shout out to everyone who listened to the Tropfest edition last week your kind words about not only the interview but about the film that we had in the top 16 waste of time have been awesome and I thank you so much for everything that you've said, for showing your support, for throwing your weight behind me, behind Ben Nicholas, behind our entire team and uh, we feel just a tremendous amount of gratitude for having had you on that little ride with us. And if you haven't checked it out yet, you can find Waste of Time on YouTube under Tropfest's channel or you can just Google Tropfest Waste of Time and hopefully it'll be our film that's the first thing that comes up but enough about living in the past today we are living in the present well every day we're living in the present but right now is about right now and my guest on this week's episode is an outstanding producer she's had a career that spanned over 25 years she's one of the leading television producers in the country her recent producing credits include Anzac Girls and Janet King, which were two of the top three highest rated ABC dramas in 2014. 
Her shows have been nominated for multiple awards both at home and abroad. And stay tuned to ABC for the next installment of Janet King. Joining me in the Ramble Room, my guest this week on Coming Up Next, Lisa Scott. Um, When was the first time that you kind of knew that this was something that you wanted to pursue? Um, I think I made a film at film school. I was my uh, boyfriend's brother, who was actually just nominated for an Oscar for Sound for Fury Road. Um, So he's over in L.A. or about to go to L.A. He's just done the BAFTA thing as well. Hmm. Um, David... David was going out with this girl, Wendy, who asked me if I'd be in a film with her. And I thought, you know, this sounds pretty interesting. It's kind of fun, you know. But I never thought about acting as a serious career or anything, but I always loved drama and, you know, mm. I went to a school where we had kind of fun, a lot of fun with that. And my, I think I blame my English teacher for where I am now because she was one who <laughs> said, you know, Shakespeare's meant to be performed, stand up, don't just sit down and read it. Yeah. So I made this film and was – you know, the first day that I went and turned up on set in this little hall in Darlinghurst with a bunch of, you know, hippie filmmakers in the um, early 80s and I was kind of just in awe with all these people creating stuff and they all, and the labour intensiveness of it all and what everybody did and, you know, and I thought I want, I've always wanted a job that isn't a job. I think mm. you and I talked about it being it's a lifestyle, you yeah. know, it's a it's not something you just come in and you just drop and, you know, everything I do is cons- everything I do and watch and see and read and film and TV and everything informs myself as a producer. So I remember thinking, this is pretty cool. I like what these people are doing. Anyway, so I bonded with the so-called production manager of this short little film at film school mm. and her and I got on really well and she said, look, do you want to come and work with me on another short film I'm doing with a director called Pip Carmel. Now, Pip is an editor who edited Shine and she made feature films, Me, Myself, I. She got nominated for an Oscar for Shine. And so I thought, oh, this is like, this is real people, you know, this is mm. exciting. She said, you know, and this is at film school and we'll be, you know, the office will be at film school. And I remember the film school then was a Colgate, the old Colgate factory in North Ride. And I just remember walking in and it was just this, you feel this sense of creativity and interesting people and they were all having conversations in corridors and the beanbag area was quite famous, mostly famous for <laughs> drinking alcohol at the end of the day, usually on Fridays. But, you know, I was walking around looking at all these amazing people and there was camera equipment that I just wanted to get my hands on. And, of course, it was 16 mil and, you know, um, Nagras and, you know, so it just the sense of being able to create something. And I remember they were my two most vivid memories of going, I want to do this. Mm. This this sounds really cool. So I made a few films at film school and then my tutor at film school, well, then in between terms, the um, we moved, the school moved from the old Colgate factory to Macquarie University where they built this huge, huge, huge studio, state-of-the-art, but it was a bit of a white elephant. It didn't really have the soul in de- as demonstrated by the fact that they're not there anymore and they've moved to <laughs> studios. So I think, you know, there were many students who kind of said, you know, why aren't, why is this not the warehouse in the inner city? Why are we schlepping all the way out to North Ride mm. um, once we got out of the Colgate factory? And so... I have to agree with them. But anyway, um, 
And it didn't have that soul and writing was over here and directing was over here and cinematographers were down in the basement and, and there were, the TV division was, you know, split. And, I mean, my thing says that I did a video course. Well, you know, it's kind of video is the medium. I did television production. And then I had this other thing that says, you know, certificate says I did television production. But anyway, so I did a year there um, doing TV and I worked with, you know, friends that I, people that I still call friends, crew extenders, um, Anthony Partos is composing um, Janet King for me right now. Michael Offer, who directed How to Get Away with Murder, is the opening pilot in America. He's directed on Homeland. Um, you know, so there are so Gina, the original girl who got me in there. They're all still, you know, friends of mine, and um, I'm pretty happy with all the happy that we've kept the associations. Um, Andy McNeil, editor. I mean, they're endless. You know, there's lots of people. Um, so then my tutor got this job at the ABC and she rang me and said, look, you know, uh, I know it's not exactly what you want to do and I know you want to work in drama and films, but um, there's this job in television and I think it might appeal to your intellect and it's working with this guy called Stuart Littlemore and there's only going to be a team of five of you, which was funny because I was talking to someone from the ABC the other day and apparently there's 40 people that work on Media Watch. Mm-hmm. Well, there was five of us back then. And... I just, dis- I thought television, this is pretty exciting. I mean, Ed Pressman had come out to film school and he'd given a lecture in the, in the theatre and said, you know, do not shit on TV. You know, he'd you know, just done plenty with Meryl Streep and, you know, he said, look, I think that television is a really powerful medium and watch where it's going to go. Now, mm. this is 1989, so go him for picking that one, yeah. you know. And um, so I was looking around and could see that this little tiny show that was 15 minutes after the flagship Four Corners and that was when there was only four channels and there was no digital and there was very little internet and to compute, you know, word processing was shift or for underline B or something, you know, it was not as easy as all this now. So I thought, you know, this is pretty cool that 15 minutes of television can have quite an impact and so... I thought maybe I, at the time, maybe this should be something I should consider rather than films. And there was quite a lot of film TV snobbery, which there isn't anymore, as we know. Mm. Um, well, it's broken down to a certain extent. But I thought, well, you know, maybe I should just stay here. Maybe, you know, television's going to be a good thing. So what I did was um, I just kept, and Brides of Christ had just been made at the ABC, followed by Leaving of Liverpool, which was an amazing series about, you know, children abuse and, you know, pretty big stuff. So Mm. I beat down the door at drama and I kept ringing them and ringing them and ringing them and going and saying, whenever there's a job, whenever there's a job, I want to come to drama, I want to come to drama. (laughs) So, um, and, you know, we had... One of the other reasons, and I'll be honest, was a personal reason I stayed at the ABC is that we set up a childcare centre while I was while I was there and when I got pregnant my daughter was the sixth child to be enrolled mm. and to have work-paced childcare, well, half of the features department, which included some pretty amazing women, were all pregnant and we all weren't going anywhere and, you know, our brains hadn't died and I remember this one man said, you know, why are we training all these pregnant women? It's like because we want to have careers of work and just because we want to have kids, you know. So... The ABC back then was a really a big leader in keeping women in the workplace. So I thought, well, this is a good place to work. It's really interesting. And, you know, I was really lucky. I was involved in 
show, you know, uh, Kate Blanchett's first television show was as a guest actor on Police Rescue that I was involved in. And then oh, wow. she did Border Town and Hugo Weaving and then um, Blue Murder. And um, so, you know, Police Rescue was the first single camera drama that was shot on film because a lot of drama was, you know, multi-camera in a studio and we weren't very, you know, that sort of look was not was not um, something that you saw very often. So, you know, the ABC drama department in the in the 90s was just leading the way and I just really wanted to be part of it. So in 92 they basically said, oh, all right, come and So for five years I worked there and, you know, had a, I learned a lot about production and I think, I mean, I always wanted to be a producer but I also wanted to know how the 16mm went through the camera, how it got telecined, how it ended up in an Avid and there were Avids and Lightworks and, you know, we also had Steambacks. The Steambacks back then, you know, it was not. <laughs> so I remember the nonlinear editing was a big deal. Seven Deadly Sins, my first production, there was a, a system called Lightworks which was a similar thing to Avid but Avid took over and Lightworks, I don't, you know went the way that some technologies do, it just disappeared. Mm. So, you know, there was when I could see that, you know, good scripts and strong writers and strong producers like Sandra Levy, who I was working with on um, Police Rescue and John Edwards, were like, okay, this is actually really cool. I kind of like the idea of TV. And, you know, friends of mine were off making the odd feature film that wasn't really getting a lot of traction. And, you know, if... If, you know, a few hundred thousand were at that stage, if two million people were watching a show as it, when it went to air, like I remember the ratings for Blue Murder were huge the night it went to air. If all those people had paid $10 for a ticket, all the filmmakers in Australia would be loaded and people weren't going to see Australian films. I mean, they loved them, Bliss, and, you know, there were a lot of great Australian films at the time. Cozzy, I was working with that direct producer, Richard Brennan, but... I just like the intimacy and the speed of television and so that's basically how I got my start. And I just wanted to learn everything and the ABC gave you that opportunity to say, if you, you know, when I was at film school I'd picked up a beta cam so I knew how to operate it. You know, I'd, mm. I'd played the Nagra, I'd sat and did some offline editing, you know, and the ABC if you wanted the opportunity to go and sit in a mixing theatre and, and so to have that all-round experience but actually to understand maybe that's the way my brain works is, you know, I need to understand the process because I think it, may, it actually makes me a better producer I think now, you know. For sure. I think we were talking um, last week about... I think I said to you that I do a lot of shooting freelance or I have and mm. editing and I've noticed the difference when I've been on set, say with another director who doesn't really understand focal length or lens sizes or, you know, just yeah. things like that, that help, help you with the process of mm. filmmaking or television making. Um, I mm. think it's, I think it's very beneficial to be multifaceted and to broaden your education beyond the literal kind of definition. Mm, absolutely you know because then you can have that conversation about no this doesn't work and you've got to re and you can say well why is it not working for you I mean you know we did a lot of screen language when I was at film school you know whether we even though we're in the television department we did that with the film students you know and so I would sit in the classroom with Dion Beebe you know he's a great cinematographer now and you know we would talk about mise-en-scene and what was working and things so I think um I've had su I had such I'm really I feel privileged really to have had that time with the ABC while they had all this in-house drama and to have the ability to be like a sponge and absorb you know Penny Chapman was you know I said to her at the Loki's last year you know 
<laughs> you're pretty well much my hero. And she's like, and I said, it's all your fault that I'm doing this. And she's like, no, stop. And I went, well, no, really, you are. Mm. And, um, you know, because she did, did do Brides and then came in as the head of drama while I was there for those five years. And so then I, you know, went out. And, I mean, I've worked on commercial television too as well. I mean, you know, I did. Then I went from the ABC. I did I was associate producer and Water Rats and so I started creeping in the producer title and working my way up then, but still not as much not responsible for scripts and not having the responsibility really until... And then I had another child, so that sort of stopped everything for a little bit, but that was, that was good. And then I took some time off because I thought, you know, I'm not going to be, I'm never going to get this time again and they'll yeah. put up with me when they're older. So <laughs> I took a little bit of time off and then um, while I was thinking about that, the industry took a, oh yeah, it's interesting how things happen. The industry took a bit of a dip in 2003 and I had, I did do Always Greener, which was, I think it, I'm not sure it probably doesn't now, but it had the highest debut ratings of an Australian serial drama at Channel 7 and mm. it was great drama, really wonderful actors. Joe Porter, a very talented producer and I learned a lot from her. And then the industry was talking, it's like, oh, it's not looking so good. So a lot of people used to go, you know, this Film Finance Corporation, a lot of people in the industry would cycle through that so they would keep industry blood going through and it wasn't, it was more a, it was more practitioners who were based in the Film Finance Corporation than they were at Screen, uh, the Australian Film Commission, mm. which was more about development. And So anyway, I applied for a job as the project manager there in 2003 and got that because I wanted to then learn. I thought, okay, well, my practical skills are pretty good. It's time to learn the finance side because finance in business is a very big part of being a producer. Mm. And, you know, you, you can I mean, you can be that kind of producer that doesn't necessarily want to know all that. But, again, going back to the way my brain works, I was like, okay, I want to understand what gap financing means and I want to understand what distribution guarantees and who who's the players in the marketplace and what sort of films they like and how you finance big international co-productions or, you know, small little um, one-hour documentary series. So when I was at the FFC, I was there for three years. Um, they did 15 feature films a year, um, things like Little Fish with Vincent Chan to... Um, and to television or blackjack series. I mean, there were so many, you know, I couldn't name them all, mm. um, to Wolf Creek to so from the low budget to the high budget to um, and then the documentary series, the one-offs, the theatrical documentaries, and they probably do about 40 of those a year. So being across all those deals, there was a project manager in Melbourne and myself in Sydney and going to set and being part of the legal you know, getting on the legal email trail that you could sometimes find you couldn't get off. But, you know, all these documents are cycling past you and going round and round and round. And so you start to see, and these are, you know, the best lawyers in the country and from around the world, and you're like, oh, okay, I'm learning about this or how that deal's done or, you know, without actually because, you know, you talk about people as directors getting directors' attachments. To be a producer and to learn, it's you really got to be self self-serving. You have to investigate for yourself, and you usually find out by making mistakes. You know, or or you're lucky enough to have a good EP who's going to show you. But to have that access, if you like, to over forty feature films, their deals, television dramas. Um, sea Patrol. I mean, there was some big stuff being made then, and how how at good budget right down to the one-off documentaries. It was pretty amazing time. So for those three years I learnt a lot 
And then from there, RGM, who was Kate Blanchett's agency, Robin Gardner, asked me whether I would be interested in joining them as their head of literary, and that was looking after writers and directors and cinematographers. So that's people like Matt Savile, Tony Ayres, Justin Monjo, some, you know, extraordinary Brendan Maher, some really talented um, people that were part of the literary department and pitching Matt Cameron, uh, who did the, who wrote the Molly um, Telly series, uh, you know. So it was about pitching their shows into the market, reading all the writers' projects, genesis of projects. So I thought, okay, well now I've done the financing. So each part of my career has been to see what it can fill a hole in my knowledge, so that ultimately when I came out the other end, which I did in the end of 2007 and 2008, I was like, okay, no I'm doing now. Mm. Let's see what I can do. And then I started, and that's when I started my association with Screen Time because I'd met Des Monaghan and Bob Campbell and they were just producing the Underbelly series through Screen Australia and that had been phenomenally successful. And um, the Mary, and they did the Adventures of Mary, Incredible Adventures of Mary Bryant. And um, I had a lot to do with Bob and Des. And so they asked me if I was interested in coming on with Carl Zwicky, who I'm still working with, um, as a line producer on A Model Daughter. But then I kept beating them down until they finally gave me my own show, too. <laughs> so <laughs> you just got to you know, get your, get your way there. Stays so, off. Absolutely. Um, especially as a producer. Mm. So. I went from um, a model daughter and then Carl was, we, there was a project that Greg Hadrick had um, pitched to him, which he really liked, called Crownies, which was at the ABC. And Carl was coming on board and he said, Lisa, time Lisa stepped up. So I was kind of the co-producer on that. And then Janet King, the producer, Anzac Girls, the producer, Janet King, again, the producer. And so, yeah, and last year, you know, I had a, the year before, I mean, when Janet King and Anzac Girls, I did them back to back and then, you know, you get so in this cone of what you're doing, this vacuum. You don't mm-hmm. sort of wait and put your babies out to the air. And, you know, Anzac Girls was the highest rating drama on the ABC in 2014. Wow. And Janet King was number three. And, you know, that was pretty amazing because neither of them had any publicity outside mm-hmm. the ABC. So, I mean, I think with Anzac Girls, for example, I did 25 radio interviews in four and a half hours around the country just going, <laughs> uh, get it out there. And I think also to give it, it's, I mean, there was a bit of Gallipoli fatigue last year and we were clever enough to go, let's get it to air mm. first. And also our story was different and, you know, there were some critics. Um, you know, not everybody's going to love everything you do. Mm. Many people thought that our girls should have been saints and the nuns and they weren't. They were young 23-year-old girls going over to, you know, the other side of the world when they've never travelled before of a ratio of one woman to about mm, 35 men. Yeah. So, you know, it, you know, and we took a lot of references. Doing that was really interesting because we took a lot of references from their diaries. So it was about crafting something. I've never felt more so honoured to honour, more so a sense to honour a story than I did on Anzac Girls. And so Felicity Packard, who was the writer, and I went on that journey with Screen Time, and I was the series produ- the lead producer on that. And 
I felt that kind of all my career was kind of waiting to do something that had that sort of gravitas about it. And I was really proud of it. And then when it got internationally recognised and then Logies and Outstandings and, you know, it didn't get an actor nomination, but there you go, these things happen. But then Janet King did. So I had a, so then I had a year where, and this is what happens when you're producing, you know, as you're generating projects, you'll find that there's a period where you're not actually working. And I've been generating my own material now, um, which hasn't got to screen yet, but I've been working on a couple of projects. But Janet King has been a really wonderful story. And so then when Screen Time said, yeah, will you keep, come back and do the second series? I was like, absolutely. So, um, you know, last year Janet King was nominated for an Outstanding Logie in the Drama Series category and Anzac Girls was nominated for an Outstanding Logie in the Miniseries category. So I'm sort of sitting in the room going, wow, <laughs> I think I think I got pulled all the strings together now. So, <laughs> That's amazing. Um, I love producing. I really, I love I love putting and pulling it all together. I love having, you know, a little, but also collaboration. I mean, you understand why this industry is so collaborative, why you need DOPs and editors and what, you know, that it, we don't exist in a vacuum. No. There is no one right way. This is not science. And that's one of the things that I really love about it, that you can sit down and, you you know, working with collaborators like Greg Hadrick and Carl Spicky and um, Des Monaghan and um, Felicity, we all trusted, had trusted each other in these projects. So to mm. sit in a room, and that's my biggest thing I think if you want to be a producer, is surrounding yourself by people that you can be completely honest with because there's no point in pussyfooting around when you have problems with scripts or when you don't like an ending or when, and, you know, so, and, you know, these people have multi-awards uh, amongst them all. They've produced hundreds of hours of drama. Greg has written so many things, you know, but... We've all got a relationship now where you can say things and I think that's, I mean, if you look at the principles of any of the companies that Matchbox and Playmaker and their relationships that people have built up over time because you have to be able to say this, is, this isn't working for me or could we do better here and, you know, no one ever sets out to make bad film or television. No. You know, I think that's a pretty famous quote um, but it's true, you know, um, not every, not, Everything works all the time, you know. Um, I'm pretty proud of Janet King, the series that's about to go to air on the ABC. I think a lot of things worked on that yeah. one. And um, Marta just did her first interview yesterday, actually, and a journalist who saw it cold, doesn't know anything about the story, said he really loved, you know, seen it to it. So that was nice. It's nice to start getting feedback because you work, you literally you are working in a vacuum and you make this show and it's really intense and, you know, I can recite every line of dialogue when I'm sitting in the grade because I've heard it over and over and over again. So when it finally gets out there because the audiences don't have a chance to hit rewind and what was that about again and so you want to get your stuff out there and so... That's where I'm at now. So it's a very long answer to how I started and where I've got to. Mm. But um, I think it's decisions have been surround yourself by people that you trust and that you want to work with and strive for those things. Be prepared to make mistakes. Um, I've put some clangers in script meetings where people have looked at me and I've gone, oh, okay, maybe that's not the best suggestion. <laughs> Sometimes I've said something and then people will turn around and go, that's a great idea. And you go, oh, phew. <laughs> But um, but there's no one right way to do it. Mm. Something you you mentioned in there was about um, I think the um, daycare that the ABC set up, and you mentioned that you know there were a few men who were saying, well, why did you want to come and work if you're just going to get pregnant? 
and I'm sure that um, this is probably a cross-board, across all industries as an issue and one that's hopefully being addressed in today's day and age. But how have you found navigating this industry as a woman who wants to be a producer? And a mum as well. And a mum. Look, it's, it's, I, people supported me when I was pregnant and had young kids. I do the same for people who have, got, who have young children because you need to have, you know, I mean, my daughter's 25 now. And I find it absolutely amazing that we are still having the same maternity leave um, conversations that I took for granted because I was part of the Commonwealth, I mean, the ABC, you're part of the Commonwealth Public Service. So, you know, the Commonwealth Public Service has had paid maternity leave for 25 years. I look at people who are still struggling to even get that in the market now. It's just bizarre. You know, it's 2016. Mm. Um, And I think, you know, we then talk about gender um, diversity and we want to see equality of women on boards. Well, those sort of things will happen if you have the first thing, if you look after people and encourage them to come back to work and say and, and provide areas for them to breastfeed and provide all those things to do, then you're going to keep the knowledge of the people that you want in the workforce. I mean, to me it seems like a no-brainer, but I just can't can't believe that we're still having this conversation. Um, So, you know, there's people like um, that helped me that had young kids, then I had young kids, and then I helped somebody who had young kids, and that's what you've got to do is that, you know, and also, look, to be honest, when I first started, the mobile phone was the, you know, the brick like this in the car (laughs) that only... that only tradies or the unit manager had, you know, everything was by fax. Now I have a phone and have done for a few many years that has enables me to email, to be anywhere. And you need to be able to make a decision, you know, as a producer, you need to be able to, and especially in television, you have to make one fast Mm -hmm. usually because of the speed in which we work, which is another thing I like. Um, And so having the, the technology is made made our job easier as a, as a woman with kids. I mean, you know, having said that, mine are 25 and 18, so, you know, they're not babies anymore. Mm. So um, and so I don't feel that sense of responsibility. But, you know, there were moments that I know my daughter was really sick and I was out on set in wherever I was at Duffy's Forest and I know that my mother-in-law was ringing up the office going, um, do you know what time she might be coming home because I'm a bit worried her daughter isn't very well. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you have to have support and whether that support in my case was family, I had, you know, my mother-in-law was very available and then there was the childcare centre at the ABC um, but it doesn't stop when they go to school. You still need support after that. You know, my husband um, was really supportive of my career as well and he kept the home fires burning as far as more, more so than I could. So, you know, it's a team thing. I think you need to have that. But I just I just can't believe we're having these conversations in 2016. I know. It's, uh, it's a little bit disheartening. Um... But at the same time, I guess, you know, at least it's out in the open and it's openly discussed, whereas maybe 25, 30 years ago, it wasn't even on people's lips. So at least there's minor progress, I suppose. Absolutely. Look, I mean, I remember there was um, an inquiry, a parliamentary inquiry into um, 
how women who were pregnant in the workforce were treated, I, you know, would have loved to have given that quote, but I didn't. But, you know, because I was, you know, slightly worried that I wouldn't be hired and if I had to put my name on the public record and all that kind of stuff. I think people now, the whistleblowers and, you know, I think people are treated better now um, as mothers with young children and um, I mean Mark Scott apparently said something about it I missed it I was listening to the ABC as I was driving home yesterday but apparently he said something about you know a lot of women have already done a full day's work by the time they get to work you know as as emotional and so you know you've got to expect that people bring their work lives to their home and if you if you want the best out of the stuff that you leave then you have to look at them in a 360 kind of attitude and I think I also do that in the way you know it's only television production if something happens to one of my crew and you know they have to go somewhere or do something it's to do with their family then they have to do it you know Mm. did you find uh that you encountered uh, maternity stuff aside did you find that you have encountered a lot of inequality kind of issues as a woman (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. I wish I really would love to say no to that question. But um, I, I was taken off a show once um, and replaced by two men, which was kind of funny, really, because I thought, why, you know, I could do this show. And they were like, oh, no, we're just a bit worried. You're not junior enough for it anyway. It went a little sour with them as well. So I kind of thought, this, but there was this perception that we'll give it to the boys, this job, you know. I don't think that happens anymore, but that was, and it was a long time ago. But um, I think that there is still, there is still some people in the workforce that treat you differently because you're a woman. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. And I remember I was on a location survey once. And a location manager said something in which I don't need to go into the details. And I turned around and said, would you have said the same thing to Blah? And Blah was a very famous Australian male producer, mm. to which case we're on a, on a bus, as you are, on a location bus recce, to which case there was, you could have heard a pin drop. There was yeah, silence. Right. <laughs> and he just went and realised, you know, and I don't mind calling people on their sexism if they, they don't, re- I think sometimes, you know, people don't realise what they say mm. and and it's not, and, but we shouldn't be, women should not be too shy and saying, you know what, that wasn't really an appropriate comment. Mm. Uh, you know, it's, look, it's the same thing as when, you know, people are on the red carpet and they're all asking the women what they're wearing, you know, really? It's, what about the project of the film that they're just putting out there? But, you know, that's the kind of, it's the material world we live in, I guess. It's different. You're not asking the men what they're wearing. Mm. And how do you do you see progress between, say, nine years ago when you started producing your first show to now in terms of, I guess, that more political side of it? Has there been – has it become more progressive or is it still kind of stuck in that old school? Oh, no, I think – look, the more experience you get and, you know, the more accolades, whether they're nominations or whatever they are, the more experience you get, then people will respect you more. Hmm. And, it look – it takes time, um, but, you know, respect is something that is earned. It's not granted and you have to earn it be it with whoever it is that you're working with. But, I mean, I've been working in this industry now for a long time and so, you know, I was a line producer and a production manager and I chose to come up that way because I really wanted to understand the whole machinations of it all and I think it makes me a better producer for it. But um, it means that the crew 
sometimes we'll go, oh, what about so-and-so? And I go, why don't you ask the line producer? And they go, oh, that's right, sorry, you're the producer now. <laughs> no, but at least they feel that they can approach me about things, that they feel that I understand them. Um, but, you know, I've now earned my stripes I think as a producer now in a meeting, in a director's meeting, I, you know, when the director will talk about script and story and, you know, in the very beginning you're, you're quieter because you want to see what everyone's going to talk about and you might, you know, I might have these little secret codes down the side of my script of little things that I would like to see and then I'll see whether people actually are going to respond on those and if there's something I feel passionate about, then I'll speak up or, you know, it's just it's learn, earning your stripes and it's like slowly the more you do it, the more people understand that where you come from. And then if you've got justification for your arguments, as I said, you know, there's no 100% right in this industry. You just want to make it better. Mm. And it's like, it's like post-production to me is like polishing the rough stone, like the diamond, and you just polish it and polish it and polish it. What elements of production you in pre-production, you do that too. And then once you've shot, then you deal with what you've got to shoot. I mean, that's another very important lesson that I learned when I was at that film school and I still take that. Once you've got your script, and I know some writers that I work with would tell me, and they sit there publicly going, oh, it's hard because I've written it and I have to put that aside. And You have to look at what you've shot. Yeah. You have to look at the pictures that you're tell the pictures in front of you and the story that you're telling. Because there's no point in thinking, oh, we really missed that moment or it's it's not there. And unless you've got money and you're gonna do pickups and you're Americans with lots of deep pockets, which in Australian you don't, you've got to go, okay, well how can we fashion this to get the intent of the story in this particular scene that we want? Mm. And uh, and you can. Editing can do that. Editing can change the tone. And then the pathos of, in, of a scene and you can go, okay, no, well, now, now we're getting closer to what the story was. You might be missing the odd beat but, you know, so be it. Look at the pictures that you've got in front of you when you get into post. That's probably one of the biggest lessons that I have learned and, and one of the most valuable. Mm. When, when you get a script uh, nowadays, what is it that makes you... What, what is it that jumps off the page and, and makes you go, I can see this as really great television? Story is always king for me. So the story has to be engaging because the audience have got, you know, we have a little thing called a remote control, which again, when I was growing up, we didn't have remote controls. You have to get up and change the channel. So, you know, people can just go, bye, I'll go to Netflix and watch what I want or I'll watch that later or actually I prefer to watch Q&A or I want to watch My Kitchen Rules, you know. So mm. you need to engage people and I think a lot of it has to come down for me for the first in television, in commercials, um, commercial land, they would say the first segment. For me, maybe in the ABC, it's probably the first half an hour, but you really need to engage your audience. So I look at the first 20 to 30 pages of a script and what's engaging, what's new, what's fresh, what's the dialogue like, um, is this a cliche, have I seen it before? It's funny because you should say that I was actually just reading script before you called me. Yeah. And um, and this is the second version that I've read. And I'm just reading it for a friend who just asked my opinion. Mm. And um, it needs a dialogue edit. Um, but the story is better. It's engaging me a bit more. Is there a mystery? And it depends what's, what story you're telling. Is it a comedy? Is it a mystery? Is um, Are you doing a multi-arc story? I and mean, that's the television has changed a lot in, this, in the respect that, and this is hard too, which I think, been talking about getting new people in because 
when I first started, you were doing 22 to 32 part series that were self-contained hours, satisfied, go home, that's the end of it, watch the next week. Now we're doing six to eight part interwoven big stories uh, that are told over over a bigger landscape. So Mm. uh, you have to make sure that you're setting up a story that people want to commit to. And, you know, as I think I might have mentioned to you, that last year alone 405 new scripted dramas were released in the English language world. Now that's an awful lot of television to catch up on and to watch. Exactly. So, you know, you have to go, well, what's, is this fresh? Is this engaging? And is this something I'm going to invest my time in? Because time is pretty important to most people now. And it's about balancing everything. And so that's, I asked myself, would I watch this? I suppose is the biggest question. And, um, you know, a lot of the times, unfortunately, it's no. I mean, I also, you know, I'm not, for example, I'm not a horror person. So, horror doesn't do it for me, so I'm not going to read a horror script, you know, and I'll be upfront with people who have sent it to me and go, you know what, it's just not my thing. But it's somebody else's thing and I get that, you know. And there are horses for courses. There's audiences for everything. There's an audience that watches Four Corners and there's an audience that watches My Kitchen Rules and I'm sure they're both pretty different, you know. So, but, you know, the footy show, I just, you know, there's people who watch that and there's people who then want to watch Grand Designs or, you know, Janet King. So... Um, and with with the fractured screens that we with the amount of screens that we have and the amount of choice that we have, I want to see that, that if I'm telling something, it's going to be different in this, you know. And I'm working with some writers at the moment on a project, and we had a big um, script session on Sunday, and um, we reference. And you've got to have a lot of screen knowledge too, because you've got to go in that scene. Remember in this project, and we might talk about a film or a mini series or a serial drama, and you know, because audiences are really savvy now. They have access to so much more content. So I, that's what I look for is the first 20 to 30 pages, is it engaging, is it something I want to watch and is the story, is it story is king? Because casting can always, you can do that later, you know, but the, the bottom line is the story's got to be there in the first place. Mm, you need, it needs to have a soul and it needs to have a core. Mm. And you've got to have, as a producer, you've got to love it. Someone's got to love this baby, you know, and follow it and shepherd it and get it through and collaborate and put everything together. It's, you know, that you say people say it's like making a cake and it is and not always the ingredients are going to gel but you really hope they are. Mm. But you've got to love the project and so that you can move it along and become something really um, exciting. Mm, you don't want to end up with some sort of carrot pavlova. No. Because that would no. be weird. When you kind of go. What the hell is that all about, you know? And look, I've watched some dramas and gone, yeah, it's not for me. And that's fine, you know. Um, but I can – and then I see other things that I'll binge three series on, like, you know, Breaking Bad or, you know, so – but I might come to them late You can't because you can't catch up with everything all the time, you know, and back to the 405 scripted dramas. Which ones do you pick? Which ones do you devote your precious time to a week? Mm. You know, if you're going to say that I've got 10 hours a week to watch – whatever it is, then, you know, that's that's 520 hours a year. So if there's 405 titles, you're not even going to watch an episode. You'll watch an episode and a half of everything. So you have to decide. And not everybody watches everything, you know. I'd hate to be a, an, an executive, development executive, trying to work out what to buy. Mm. Uh, you just become numb to it all, I imagine. Yeah, well... There's a, look, there's there's always something unique where you go, this is really good and I really like this, mm. you know. 
And where do you see, you said at the start of the the start of the show um you were talking about directors who are now going over to direct pilots and this kind of movement towards that where do you see television heading in that sense well the thing about i'll just give you a little thing for to if you direct a pilot in america say like martin scorsese directs vinyl Mm. They actually get the Directors Guild in America. There is a the directors get remunerated for every episode that goes to air after that. So there is a financial incentive for that's why pilots and pilot seasoning being picked up, and the director who's directed that pilot gets a financial incentive because they um, rightly so look at the director's authorship of the project. Now in Australia, we we don't do that. Mm. Um, our budgets aren't as big, and you know you then you're paying royalties and things that we don't have the money to pay for that. And as much as I'd love to say that's great. Television, directing, producing in television is much more, television, sorry, television is much more a producer's medium and film is much more a director's medium. But I think that directors are seeing that they can tell a good story. I mean, you know, Martin Scorsese on vinyl, who would have ever thought it? You know, so there are many directors that um, now come into television because Actors get attracted by a big story to tell. You know, I saw The Honourable Woman. I'm not sure if you saw that, which was written and directed by an English director. Um, He wrote the whole ten episodes. It's a really strong drama. It was on the BBC. Um, Adam Blick, I think his name was, a really talented guy. And Maggie Gillenthal was the lead and she played this English Israeli, very, you know, wealthy Israeli daughter. Her dad had been assassinated and her and her brother were trying to follow on through um, their father's footsteps. Anyway, I digress. But I was at MIPCOM at the festival, a television market in Cannes, and she came out and had a Q&A after the first episode screened. And she said, I just loved having 10 hours to tell, have this character and go through this story arc and ups and downs and, you know, tell it. It was a big story to tell with a big palette. And she said, you know, because if I do a film, it's 120 minutes, I've got to shoot in eight to ten weeks and then it's over. Mm. And so you have to map every bit of your journey and you want to make sure you're getting it right, where she said there's just much more meat on the bone if you get a chance to do an eight to ten part series. And she's she's right, you know. So I think it's... um, it's exciting to see that film actors are really keen in doing television, you know. So um, I get excited by things like that. Mm. And, and where do you see things headed, I suppose, in, say, 10 years' time? I don't think cinema will be dead at all because I think people still love to go to the cinema. But having said that, majority are there's, – there's a disparity you've got – you know, the 45-plus women going to see the films like Dressmaker and um, which is great, you know, Australian film, who would have thought $20 million was fantastic. Congratulations mm. to Sue Maslin, you know. Um, and then we've got and they're going to see female-driven projects, the independent film, and then you've got the tentpole films like the Star Wars, is, you know, which are huge and, you know, the the big visual effects Marvel comics films, you know. The the independent film that sort of sat in the middle is there's not that many that really break out. You know, if you think of one particularly, I'm thinking of Spotlight or Blue Jasmine or I actually haven't looked at the numbers for Spotlight, but if I think of Blue Jasmine from a couple of years ago um, and that, you know, there's no reason why we can't make those films. Okay, we're not Woody Allen, but I mean, the the story 
the story was is pretty universal, and um, it was a, and it was a really well crafted film, and I really enjoyed that. So I still think there will be an audience to go to the cinema. But as I said to you before, you know, if I'm watching something on my iPad and then I can watch it on my lovely Retina screened MacBook Pro here, or um, I won't watch anything on my phone because I think it's just too just too mean to the creators of of um, of the projects, but. You can do anything anytime now. And if you've got Wi-Fi, which everybody in the whole world has, thanks to that wonderful Australian, you know, you can watch anything anywhere. So I think I've always thought it would become a screen. Um, I've always thought that your television will become your computer will be, and your computer will become your television. And I think we've seen smart televisions too, and I thought that about six years ago. Mm. So, um, you know, nobody ever knows anything, and if they do, they're lying. So. <laughs> You know, I can't read the future, but I can see that there is, you know, whether we're going to have Stan, Netflix, Presto, Foxtel, whether all these are going to be able to survive, all these SVOD services, I don't know. You know, is the market going to, is is Netflix going to have a one platform for all over the world rather than Netflix US, Netflix Australia, Netflix Europe? Is the are the windows going to be collapsed now? By windows, I mean is if you make a film and it's theatrically put out there, and then there's a certain amount of time before it comes onto DVD or becomes available on Netflix, and then there's a certain amount of time before it'll go to be available for free to air. Those bits in the window are called win- uh, bits in the middle are called windows. Now, ultimately, when I was in Monte Carlo last year where Anzac Girls was nominated for a Golden Nymph Award and there's a part of a festival there and I was speaking to one of the the vice president of one of the oldest studios in France and I said, do you see these windows being collapsed? And he said, I don't want to think so because as a producer that's how we make our money because we segment it and we sell off those segments together. And I said to him, yeah, well, doesn't that mean that if we're not going to do that, if we have one buyer, they've got to put an awful lot of money down? So I think we saw that in Sundance. There was a film that was offered an, a distribution deal by Netflix or Amazon. I'm, I'm not sure which. I think it might have been Netflix for 18 to $20 million. The filmmakers ended up going with a film distributor and not going for the big chunk of the money up front. So I think the financing models are shifting um, how those windows are going to be collapsed and how we monetize that. But then on the other side of it, I see my 18-year-old son who is extremely frustrated that his series that he wants to watch, which is screening in America, is not screening here right now. And he knows that downloading is not permitted in our house. Mm. Um, but, boy, I'm sure he does. Mm. I'm sure he does because they all do, you know. And And the consumer says, it's out there. Why can't I have it now? Why do I have to wait? And I think we need to address that mm. as an industry. I mean, the day and date release um, was something that Steven Soderbergh did with Puppy a few years ago and everyone was like, what, are you kidding me? And now people are really actively talking about same day and date release. So I think that's where it will become interesting and how that affects the financing models and the ability for producers then to finance their next projects that's a crystal ball and that's a whole new territory and you know, um, we have to wait and see. Mm. I suppose from a philosophical standpoint, how do you feel about this really kind of connectedness? of? I mean, as you were saying that, I was kind of casting my mind back to my childhood and, I mean, not even having an awareness of what shows were being made overseas and then 
having a small awareness of films and having to wait six months or something between a US release and an Australian release, which I imagine was significantly less than it probably was 20 years earlier than that. What's your kind of philosophical standpoint on things being so readily available and connected? Well, the internet, we have the internet. We can't turn back that clock. So I think we have to embrace the fact that I can dial in with a VPN to any country that I want if I want. I don't have one. I'll just put it out there. I don't have a VPN. But people do it, you know. So if the mechanisms are there, then we as producers have to find a way to work with those mechanisms because we're not going backwards. So and we are all connected and I see the frustration that um, that viewers and viewers want to pay for content. They want it. They want it now. And I understand that. So I think as producers, and it's happened to me, I'm going, hang on, isn't that third series been in the States already? Why isn't it on Netflix here? And it's frustrating for me. I will never illegally download because I just won't do that because I know that's taking money. It's stealing, you know, and I won't ever do that. But it's frustrating, I think, if you're talking to people that have only grown up in the internet um, generation of saying, well, (laughs) why can't I? It's there, it's free, why can't I? So I think we need to work out a way to monetize that, that they can get access to it. I mean, my son said to me, if I could pay for it, I would. And I think we are ignoring that. Mm. I think that's, you know, something we really need to tap into, that if they can get what they want and they're willing to pay for it, then why aren't we asking them to? Mm. And they're really my touchstone. I look at the two of them because their tastes are slightly different being, you know, six and a half years apart in age, um, what they like to watch and how they access it. But, you know, both of them do like drama. They won't watch drama. I don't think my daughter has watched drama free to wear. I mean, the idea of saying, hi, like, here's one hour and I want you to wait a whole week before you, uh, or as Mark Scott <laughs> said breakfast the other day, 167 hours has worked it out, good on him, um, to watch the next hour. And this generation, my 18-year-old son would go, that's nuts. You know, he gets frustrated enough when he has to wait his show that he really likes his MasterChef, you know. Um, And there is the water cooler moment of television that people are, if you look at the numbers, people will still watch those kind of shows, not on catch-up. Drama is big on catch-up. So you watch the, um, now that we've got the the Oztam ratings are going to be able to be including the um, video, uh, what are they called, VPN, uh, VPM uh, numbers so that we can get in a true consolidated number of what people are watching. I mean, you know, people aren't going to watch, they're not going to take M- MKR or MasterChef or a celebrity or whatever reality show they want. They want to be able to talk about that because mm. once it's done in the half an hour, it's gone, it's over. It's like a doc, you know, it's gone. But drama, someone will say, oh, have you seen it? No, no spoiler alerts. I haven't seen it. Okay, we'll give you respect and wait till you catch it up on Netflix or you watch it on Series Link on Foxtel. Or um, So there, there are different viewing habits. You know, the time of sitting down on a Sunday night um, to watch some American show as a family and wait for it to come on and then turn it off and have to wait another week. That's long gone. So I think we need to look at how how that um, we can make that work for the audience as well as make that work for producers. Mm. And it's a scary whole new world. But, you know, so the internet was a scary whole new world. We've survived with that one. So, you know, we think we just need to see how it all works. Mm. 
to the benefit of all parties, really. Mm. How long do you think is long enough to wait before you start talking openly about a show that other people haven't seen? That's a tricky one. I always preface something with, have you seen blah? Mm. Because I know as an audience member I hate spoiler alerts. You know, I mean, I hate spoilers, you know. So I, yeah, I, do, I always, look, it's, you know, the people you're going to discuss it with are your colleagues and your friends. You know, I would never put anything on social media unless it says in big heading, spoiler alert. And there was a lot of stuff like I am only halfway through making a murderer mm. and I, uh, I've seen a lot of things on social media about and it's a spoiler alert at the top. I think if you preface anything with that, then it's up to you. If you're stupid enough to go and read it, then that's your fault. <laughs> but, you know, I, amongst my friends, you know, we have this blah, 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 you know, mm. we just have a respect for one another um, that you can watch shows in your own time, you what know. Something and, like The Sopranos, which ended like <laughs> 10 years ago. Yeah. I think that's pretty reasonable. I think mm. the time the time period has gone there. So the buffer you know. zone's probably about what eight to ten years after the show's finished. I think that's too long. Even I would say <laughs> I would say maybe two or three. You yeah. know, probably you know within a year's a bit cheeky, mm. given that there are four hundred and five of them every year. Yeah. You know, so it's going to take a few. But years you know, to catch talking up. about last scene, for example, with Tony Soprano and The Sopranos, I think everybody knows what that scene is now. Mm. You know, so no, spoiler I think alert I, for anyone who doesn't. Spoiler alert for anyone who doesn't, I didn't say it. (laughs) (laughs) That's true, you didn't. You've got to have some intrigue in life, you know. There's got to be something exciting in life. Uh, I I agree, and and I'm I'm with you. If if people start talking about a show and I haven't watched, for example, Making a Murderer is a big Mm. one that people are talking about at the moment. I haven't watched it. So as soon as it's mentioned, I make it very well known that I haven't seen it. Mm. um, Mm. And I say I would really appreciate it if you would take your conversation outside or I will leave. Um, yeah, Either exactly. way, it's fine. It's, yeah, no, it's fine. And I think that's a reasonable thing to do, you know. Mm. And, um, yeah, so, I mean, all as far as I've got, you know, I'm four episodes in, I'm going, oh, there's still another six to go. And all I've had friends go, do it. Mm. It's like, okay, well, I don't want to hear why, but people I respect their opinion have said do it. So I've yeah. gone, okay. And look, also as producers, never underestimate word of mouth. You know, that's a very powerful tool um, to see. I mean, I watched Janet King's figures last time. Now, we started here and iView started here. As the show got more popular on free-to-air and it went up like this, the iView figures started dropping because people wanted to watch it when it was going to air because they'd been told by people, Mm. this is a really good series. So stop watching it on iView as catch-up then watch it as but you know there is there's other battles that we have to face um in australia too we've got to face that our agreements with actors the australian television rights and residuals agreement is over 10 years old now and you know it it didn't feature the landscape that we've got now so i mean we've got a few you know the screen producers association has got a few battles to have to face to make the audiences uh, to, to basically to bring the agreements for the actors in line with what audience expectations are like. All our awards and everything that actors and uh, work under are conceived for a free-to-air broadcast as a primary run. Well, that's not going to be the case anymore. Mm. So, there's, you know, we just it's a changing landscape. Mm. Are you? Do you feel uh, hopeful and positive about the future for the, f- the film and television industry and for producers moving forward? 
Absolutely. There is, I mean, all these different screens and platforms require content. And, you know, I I remember when um, cable television first started, pay TV started, and I was in the States. Like I went over to visit a friend of mine. It wasn't in Australia. And I remember looking at this like, this guide of, you know, electronic, it wasn't electric. No, it wasn't electronic. It was a paper guide. And I was flicking through it at my friend's house in Connecticut going, my God, there is so much stuff here. But it's a bit like a lolly shop. You know, you kind of get a bit overwhelmed when you look at it all and then realize you've got to pick out the best bits of the, of the sweet shop. You know, there are some things that you've already had before, you know? So I think, you know, there's a lot of content out there at the moment. Some of it, we want to look for good, new, original programming and opportunities that having these SWOT services, what they can do for Australian producers and for production companies and for the grips, gaffers and everybody that rely on this industry. I mean, you know, it's um, it's a big industry in Australia and it's a global industry and, you know, the reach of Mad Max shows the um, shows the type of expertise that we have and, you know, Ridley Scott's shooting his next film and just down the road at Fox Studios. And so we've got, you know, to for someone like him to come to Australia and recognise the talent that there is here is pretty extraordinary. So I think, you know, we have to we have to look forward and say we have to be positive about it. I don't mm. think there's any point in being a naysayer, you know, and it's the thing like I'm saying about the whole piracy thing is we have to address it head on. Mm. and look at what audiences want and how can we make that work as producers and production companies so everybody has a viable industry. I mean, the problem in television, there is one. There is a problem that we have as far as getting new talent in that, you know, you and I did discuss last week is that, you know, when you have 22-part series that you can slip in a new writer and a new director and that's going to be, you can give them a chance and a break. Whereas if you're doing six to eight-part series and there's a director's list 10, 10 people long and all of them are A-list directors deciding who's going to be your director and, and a lot of robust discussion takes place between you and the network, um, it's um, it's difficult for new people to get there. So it's the self-generators, the people like Jungle and those guys of what they've done and then slowly they build from something smaller and, you know, they have to sort of prove their worth a bit more so than we did, you know. Mm. Um I think that is a challenge, but with all these, with the, you know, the internet, my old producer's assistant has just been shooting and creating, he's created and shooting a whole web series that um, um, he has been shooting on weekends with friends and, you know, if that breaks out and it's cost him not a lot of money, everybody's donated their time for free, he's applying for post-production funding, you know, so there are opportunities and YouTube, I mean, YouTubers, you know, look at look at that whole phenomenon. I'm not into it but my son is, you know, mm. he told me, he tells me a lot about who the latest new people are and what, so, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of avenues that even though, traditional television might be the six day part series with the big a-list directors there are places that that the internet has provided online platforms for new and emerging talent which is pretty exciting really because you have a lot of freedom on those platforms Mm, it's very exciting and for Mm. someone in my position it's um it's great to have that kind of accessibility to an audience it's difficult because you know you the, the breadth of people who are putting stuff out there is significantly higher, but at the same time, there's a lot more opportunity to stand out. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and back to story is king and back to the idea of hooking you in and back to the first, you know, 10 minutes mm. and the, the key to the 15 second pitch. 
15 seconds. I'm interested. Go. <laughs> Your time starts now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm not that brutal. But there are people, you know, that you need to hone your pitches. That's that's why Spa has a pitching competition every year. You know, you need to practice um, hooking an audience in that might have heard 150 pitches, you know. So it's like what's going to make your project stand out mm. in, in a marketplace where there are lots and lots of projects. Mm. Well, this has been an incredibly um, informative and um, eye-opening conversation. It's a lot more, uh, a lot more informative than than these conversations usually are. They kind of detour around a lot. This one's had a lot more focus, and I attribute that to the fact that you are an excellent producer. So you've produced this interview very well. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, well, I hope you like Janet King. I hope you enjoyed. I think it's um, a really good series, and it'll be on the ABC very soon. I really look forward to seeing it and um, and seeing Damo, who is a coming up next alumni, uh, acting in it. I, I I end I end every show by asking the same question, and that question is, what makes you silly? What makes me silly? Red wine. <laughs> In what way does that make you silly? <laughs> um, uh, what makes? Why does red wine make me silly? Um, because sometimes you can come out with the silliest things after you've had a couple of glasses of wine on a Friday night. Um, I try. I don't drink during the week, so I'm quite have a strict rule about that now. I didn't used to, but I do now. But um, it can make you silly because you come out with some silly ideas and um, alcohol can loose lip sync ships. <laughs> I'll leave you with that one. <laughs> Fair enough. Thank you so much for doing this, Lisa. Really appreciate your time. Pleasure. Thanks, Alistair.